Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December 7th, 2016, and this is episode 1912 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, today we have a really great interview scheduled for you. We're going to have Richard Hastings on. He is the... Uh, founder and owner of East Texas Aquaponics, which is a very new company. Uh, Richard is going to be on to talk to us about uh, starting a commercial aquaponics business, but the, the more overriding theme is kind of stepping off the cliff into an unknown, into a new life. Uh, Richard spent 26 years as a uh, software engineer in Austin, Texas, before he and his family four moved away in the summer of 2015 to an area where they didn't know anyone. They took their 10th grader daughter, kicking and screaming from one of the best government schools in Texas to a totally unknown to them small school and a small community. Since then, they've built a commercial aquaponics system and started to sell into the market. Richard has his PBC from the on, uh, online Jeff Lawton program in 2014. And he's been a listener of the Survival Podcast since uh, episode 415 and an MSB member as well. Um, he, he also is one of the few people that in all the years I've done this show, I've actually, you know, kind of reached out to him and said, Hey man, you should come be a guest on the show. Uh, getting on the show is actually not that hard. If you have an interesting story to tell, you go fill out a form. That form's down right now because we're booked through the end of the year, but it'll probably be back up next week. Uh, and we'll be booking into, uh, 2017. So generally I just let that happen organically and we get more guests than I can handle and I shut the form down for a month or two so we don't book out too far in advance and then I bring it back. Every once in a while something comes along though and I say, hey, you know, you should come be on the show. Paul Wheaton was an example of that. Richard and I kind of hooked up on uh, YouTube. I was putting in this little water garden together that was just basically for some nursery tanks for fish in my uh, garden ponds. And I think he got the idea at first I was doing an aquaponic system. He's trying to give me some advice. I'm like, dude, no, that's not what I'm doing. And he's like, yeah, cool, I get it now, but here's what I'm doing. And he posts this link to this 6,600-square-foot-high tunnel aquaponics operation. That is awesome, man. You know, I like, you know, uh, comment back, that's, that's awesome. I have no idea who the guy is at this point. He's just some guy that follows my YouTube channel. There's, there's you know, plenty of people that follow my YouTube channel that – have no interest in TSP. They just like the YouTube videos. So I have no idea who I'm talking to. He says, oh, I've been listening to you for years, and you know, we kind of did this with some encouragement from the TSP community, and uh, we just started this. And I'm like, dude, you got to be on the show. So that's kind of the backstory, and we'll have Richard on just a bit to uh, talk more about that. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Guys, right now, do you know I have personally about 100 trees, vines, and bushes from Bob Wells Nursery on my property? Over time, they will produce season after season of edible products. They look great, too. Bob Wells is always my first choice when buying new trees, vines, and shrubs for my permaculture work. Check them out at bobwellsnursery.com today. Hey, folks. When I started TSP over eight years ago now, the first company to ever offer to sponsor the show was SafeCastle. And they've remained a loyal sponsor ever since February of 2009. And did you know they give away a lifetime discount membership to all MSB members? They do. And that can save you big money on everything you can imagine for your prepping needs. And with SafeCastle, I do mean everything. Check out SafeCastle.com today to learn more. 
And our TSP Business Directory supporter today is Audio Imagery Design. They offer location sound services for video recording, post-production sound mixing and design, as well as live band recordings, engineering and mastering. They also provide video recording, lighting, control systems for your events. They are located in Dallas. But traveling to your project is not a problem. Go to audioimagerydesign.com and search for AID or search for AID in the TSP business directory. Of course, there'll be a link to them in today's show notes. Let me tell you, Hatch is a guy that runs that and he's pretty damn awesome. I'm actually a, a customer uh, via barter with Hatch. I have a sound system here at my place now that those of you who were to the event got to see how, how awesome that works. So I can now have music. I can have my TV when we're watching football out in the garage on. But when we do events, we can have people speaking to a lav mic that actually goes to both the camera and to the audio system so everybody can hear. And we've even got speakers out on the porch that are wired back into that in a second zone just so we can listen to music. Or when sometimes students are at the event, they maybe are not right in the event, they can still hear what's going on. Very cool. He did an incredibly professional job for us, and I'm very happy with the system, so I can endorse them fully as not just uh, a member of our community, but as their customer. With that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1912. I've only got one story for you today, probably because... Alex Shrugged was like, this is the one he's going to read, so I'm not doing two today. Um, it is the practically unsinkable Titanic. We know how that works. Uh, but notable births. We have Raul Waldenberg. He will issue thousands of Swedish passports to Jews, saving them from Nazis through creative paperwork. Uh, Warren von Braun invents the V-2 rocket for the Nazis events and the Saturn V rocket for the United States. Again, these, are, these people are born this year. Alan Turing, the father of computer science and a genius credited with being the, be, breaking the Nazis' enigma code. And Milton Friedman, free market economist who will say governments never learn, only people learn. God, I love that quote. In other news, opium is now illegal. It's the law. A treaty to control opium sales assigned between countries in Asia, Europe, and the United States. Jim Thorpe, all-American, is stripped of all his medals. The Olympic Committee discovers that he once played semi-pro baseball. If you don't know who Jim Thorpe is, go find out. He might be the greatest athlete of all time. He won gold medals in the pentathon and the uh, decathlon uh, in, I believe it was the 1910, uh, is, uh, is when he won the medals, but he was stripped in 1912, something like that. He went on to play uh, baseball and football. And is just one of the most incredible athletes. He was also half Native American. There's a lot to the story. You might want to do some follow-up if you've never heard of Jim Thorpe, especially if you're a sports fan. And the missing link is found. Piltdown Man is supposedly 500,000 years old. 45 years later, the hoax will be revealed. If I remember right, it was like a human skull with like a monkey's jaw or something like that was how they did the hoax. Anyway, let's read the practically unsinkable Titanic sinking. The Titanic is the star of the White Line Super Luxury Ocean Liners. It boasts a double iron hull. Hatches below the waterline can be shut with the flip of a switch. And engineering spec says it's practically unsinkable. So why carry lifeboats? It'll take a few, but let's not go overboard, eh? Titanic sets off from Southampton with 2,224 passengers and crew on their way to New York. Two days later, they receive warning of icebergs ahead but there's no binoculars available for lookouts. The first officer makes a note of this deficiency to be corrected once they reach New York. The Titanic never makes it. At 10, 11.40 p.m., a lookout shouts, iceberg straight ahead. 
He rings the bell, and 40 seconds later, they hit. It's a glancing blow, but a gaping slash below the waterline opens up. The compartments flood fast, and oddly enough, the engineers had designed them to be watertight. I can see the hangman's noose somewhere in the future. The new wireless telegraph issues a distress call. The Carpathia is four hours away, plenty of time, so the lifeboats are filled but not lowered. Multimillionaire John Jacob Astor helps his wife into a lifeboat, then steps back politely to let the evacuation continue. He will be staying forever. The final compartments give way, the bow goes under, and everything not nailed down shifts forward. The stern lifts high into the air and then snaps. The Carpathia arrives two hours later to pick up 705 survivors, mostly women. It is the greatest single disaster in maritime history. My take by Alex Shrug, the Board of Inquiry held the captain of the Titanic to have made a mistake, but not a negligent mistake. This finding was greeted with mocking derision by the public. The event lives on in memory through media such as the unsinkable Molly Brown. That was the first live production I had ever seen. It was also the first time my parents took me to a real sit-down restaurant. Of course, there was also a major motion picture, Titanic 1997. Guys with butterfingers are still dropping their gals into the drink after that movie. My favorite novel on the subject is Passage by Connie Willis. If I say more, it will be a spoiler. Just know that the book scared the heck out of me. Um... What I remember most about Titanic was that right about the time the movie came out was when they actually were able to recover parts of the Titanic. And here in Dallas, we had a like a museum tour thing come through where you could go see actual recovered things from the ship. And some of it looked like it had been on an ocean floor for almost 100 years. And some of it looked like it was plucked out of a museum somewhere else. It was pristine. But the most impactful thing that they had there was a giant piece of ice. And this piece of ice was frozen salt water. And we know that salt water freezes at lower temperatures than water, you know, fresh water. It takes a colder temperature to freeze salt water. But it certainly will freeze, as we can see with icebergs. So basically it was an iceberg. They made an iceberg. And you were invited to go touch it, and you could see that people had touched it in one or two spots where handprints were being beginning to melt into this big chunk of ice. And the reason you were invited to touch it is that that ice would be about the temperature that the water was that the people fell into. Because you think, well, they you know, could swim at least and try to survive or grab onto a board or something, and uh, it kind of took your breath away with how cold that water was. And to think of people drowning in such cold water... Uh, drowning is horrible enough as it is. Maybe, in fact, it was a blessing that that water was that cold because it made the process swifter. I'm not sure. I'm just grateful that in my life I, I haven't gotten an answer to exactly how that works uh, to that question. Anyway, um, I would be remiss to, to not point out to the today's December 7th as we're talking about history, and of course that is Pearl Harbor Day and the U.S. entry into World War II. But I have something special at the end of today's show, so we'll save it for then. With that, I want to say, hey, Richard, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. It's great to be here. Yeah, I was telling the audience a little bit about your setup and how I kind of connected with you on YouTube and, and didn't know who you were uh, at the time. They didn't know you were a listener or anything because people watch my YouTube crap all the time. And you're giving me this advice on my little crappy garden pond thing. And like, who is this guy? And then you send me this video and there's this huge grow house and all this cool stuff. So uh, they kind of know how I, I found you, but they don't know who the hell you are, right? So could you kind of take us back to like 
young Richard Hastings sitting in study hall in his senior year, picking his nose, trying to figure out what to do with his life, and uh, how you end up to the point where you're running aquaponics because you did a lot of things in between. Yeah, Jack, I, I did do a lot of things in between. And, yeah, I certainly didn't sit in the back of algebra class in high school thinking, you know, one day I want to be a farmer. Um, but anyway, you know, I grew up as a, as an army brat and as a kid and I was born in uh, Tokyo, Japan, actually, which is always one of the fun facts I love to throw out into a party. Um, but I grew up in Tulsa after my dad retired in 1972. And so, uh, you know, I played sports and baseball, soccer, that sort of thing. And I was in Boy Scouts and got my Eagle Scout when I was 15 years old. But, you know, as I went into high school and one of my uh, teachers had a little TRS-80 Model 3 or Model 1 computer, and and I went, oh, that's cool. And I decided at that point I wanted to be a computer guy. And so, you know, it just kind of came natural, naturally to me. So anyway, I went off to college, and uh, somewhere in there I did a stint in the Army Reserves. And then in 1988, I went to work at IBM in Austin. Got married in 89, had kids uh, in the next decade, but pretty much that entire time, I always wanted to live a life that was out in the wild. You know, I had this fantasy of being a mountain man in the wilds of Alaska. You know, and now I see things on History Channel, I'm going, I don't want to be that wild, but I had to do my... <laughs> It, uh, <clears throat> it's a little crazy, isn't it? And, yeah. you know, but I had, yeah. yeah, but I had to do my duty as a citizen of this nation and as a husband to my wife and a son to my parents. I had to do my duty, get a job and the lifestyle that goes with it. So that's how I kind of ended up, um, in Austin and we've been, uh, married for 27 years and, uh, been in Austin the entire time in the high tech industry, both my wife and I, uh, been doing the high tech thing. So, you know, that's, that's kind of where we got to this. And then, you know, one day I woke up and said, you know, I'm getting old. <laughs> I need to do something else. Yeah. The famous Jimmy Buffett song, I'm grow growing older, but not up. Um, and, and time, time kicks our ass, man. I know you said you didn't, you know, sit around dreaming about being a farmer, but that's kind of what you're doing now. Completely odd off the topic thing, sort of. But encouraging. I just today on Facebook saw a picture that they now have. Mattel has released a farmer Barbie, which sounds like a little thing, but it's really not. That's huge. That's actually a really big thing because it means kids are thinking about this type of thing because they wouldn't make something that there's no interest in. So that's that's kind of cool. I know what oh, absolutely. To do what we're talking about sort of, but it kind of does, you know. That's that's kind of crazy, but you know that's true. I mean, you remember back? Oh God, what was it in the seventies or eighties when there was a math is hard Barbie and there was this giant uproar about oh you know now you're pushing girls away from you know math and science and that sort of thing. Yeah. And now they're doing a farmer Barbie. Farmer that's Barbie. pretty cool, actually. No pink either. She looks like a farmer. I think that's she's actually, awesome. If I remember right, I think she's a brunette. Ooh, yeah, she's got like Marianne. Little, little chestnut hair going, like she had a little hair dye action going on. But uh, seriously, like, so what was your what was your lifestyle like before you made this decision to to, to switch to change? Oh man, we were typical upper middle class. We were living on the edge of town, quite literally about 150 feet away from the city limits. Um, in there in Austin, we had a big house, a big backyard. And uh, the backyard, of course, was filled with limestone and live oaks. 
And my wife and I have both been in the high-tech industry since late, 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 excuse me, since the late 80s. We had two children, then we adopted a third, and we had all the trappings that that lifestyle called for. So, you know, we always bought new cars. We had a $35,000 boat. We had kids in the best government schools we could move to. Of course, we also had all the debt that was required to live that lifestyle, and that's a totally different episode. And our lives and our efforts were spent really pretty much defending that lifestyle. You know, we were active in our church community, and we volunteered helping out in the Gulf area when Katrina and Rita hit. And that was kind of a wake-up call uh, for sure. And, you know, when 2008 came along and I watched uh, the third recession of my adult lifetime nearly eradicate our IRAs and savings, that kind of caused me to dig around and start paying attention to the financial bubble blowing and the Ponzi-like nature of our economy. And then in 2010, you know, because these things are never just, you know, one fall off the cliff type thing. In 2010, we watched the movie The Book of Eli. Do you remember that? I do, yes. It was a great movie. Anyway, it was kind of, you know, if you haven't seen it, it's sort of like a typical Mad Max scenario. But you have no idea how civilization just crumbled under, you know, underneath all of us. So as the movie ended, I, I remember that I looked over at my wife and I said, you know, we have no idea what happened to create, you know, the scenario and that sort of thing. And I just said, you know, I wonder what it could have been. I wonder if it could actually happen. And then I went through my brain all the things that might happen, right? It could be Yellowstone could blow up. You know, you could have an earthquake with a giant 800-foot tsunami. You, global warming, global cooling, who knows, economic collapse, right? And about the time I got to the 10th possibility, right, and I'm sitting there and going, well, what is the possibility of that happening in any given year, right? And after I've gotten through 10 or 12 different possibilities, I'm realizing that the probability of some event happening in my lifetime is non-zero. And, uh, and so I realized that, um, you know, I was just, you know, here I was a Boy Scout, and honest God, I wasn't prepared for, me, for any of it. Um, so, you know, Jack, someday we're going to run out of oil. We're going to have that solar flare or the economic collapse of some sort. And, you know, um, I know that I need to be prepared. And to me, it isn't really a question of if. It's a question of when and whether my family would be alive when it happens and how we respond to it. Anyway, shortly after that, right, I mean, because I think we all go through this, oh, crap sort of phase. Sure. You know? Uh, I found the TSP, started listening at episode 417. And so anyway, I appreciate early on that you talked me off the edge way back when with your Spirico scale of disaster probability. <laughs> but after – anyway, and then, you know, and after 27 years of slaving over a hot keyboard, I realized that I was living a life defending that lifestyle. And so every morning I got up, drove 50 minutes through traffic for the express purpose of being able to pay the bills – and, you know, don't get me wrong. I love the people I worked with and I enjoyed a lot of the things I was doing. But in that industry, it is not kind to the older members of the workforce, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. So that, so that was the push, right? In addition, I had this fantasy of being the grandpa that the kids tell their friends about, you know. My kids range from 17 to 24 now and someday soon I expect some grandchildren. Uh, kids, you hear that? And so, um, <laughs> Yeah, just in case they listen, right? Yeah. All right. So I want those kids to grow up knowing that food comes from a garden, how to shoot a twenty-two, how to change the oil in a tractor, or for heaven's sake, how to bait a hook and take the fish off. 
And I wanted to create Camp Gramp for my grandchildren. And the question really was for me was how to get there. And so, you know, I, I, I couldn't just get, quit my job and do nothing and retire out there and, you know, 20 acres or something. So I needed to have an income. And I could have just moved to the country, buy 10 acres and drive an hour to town and continue to work at a job. But it really didn't seem like a good choice to me. And I'd become aware of aquaponics thanks to your episode 587. And, and I had a koi pond at the time, a fairly large one. So fish really didn't intimidate me at all. And so I, and I also usually had a garden, um, you know, ever since I was a kid, actually. And so to me, aquaponics seemed like a nearly perfect way to grow food, both protein and vegetables. And so it was just a matter of scale. And scale is a question of math. And being an engineer of math, I can do math. So I'm now scaled at the size of a small commercial system, and I'm currently capable of growing uh, maybe 1,000 to 1,300 heads of lettuce per week, depending upon the temperature and the amount of sunlight. Anyway, so we hope to nearly grow uh, or nearly double, excuse me, our production in the second phase of our project um, to over 3,000 plants a week that we'll be able to grow, depending upon, you know, when we get to the point of where we're selling all that we produce now. So That's we'll see how that cool. works. So just, I don't want to jump ahead on the technical side of stuff because I want to talk about it towards the second half of the show, but yeah. uh, I saw your video with that, that, uh, that, that uh, tunnel, right? And Right. So when you say double, do you mean you don't need to put in more of that infrastructure? That's just expanding to the other side that would get you to that Ex number? Exactly. Okay. The, yeah. So, you know, the greenhouse is 6,600 square feet, and it's only half built out at the moment. I got you. I didn't know if maybe you'd already done that, and now you're going to have to put it in. So that, that's that's a lot of production out of one house. Again, we'll we'll hold off on the uh, technicals for a bit. I want to kind of talk about the lifestyle decisions here. So, You have this great paying job. You're living in Austin. There's worse places mm -hmm. to live than Austin, Texas. There really is a lot. I have I have heard that. I have heard yeah, that. There's yes. some really bad places to live compared to. And, and you got a kid that's in a good school. She's probably happy. How do you get the wife, the kid, on board with this this uh, you know midlife crisis? We're gonna go put in a greenhouse and raise fish and plants. Right. <laughs> Well, I can tell you this right now that bringing the kid along, that was kicking and screaming the whole way until about two weeks after we got here. And all of a sudden she realized the kids were kids and, and she was going to be hanging out with these other new kids. And, and hey, she fit in just fine. Um, my wife, on the other hand, and God bless her, she's amazing. Uh, she loves the garden and loves the natural aspect of living out in the country. She also loves to cook. It's one of those things where she didn't know how to cook until one day she was watching Food Network and said, I can do that. And so, and so, you know, she like in the last 10 years, like became an awesome cook. It's just really amazing. Anyway, so I think that's part of the equation is that, you know, she, she wanted to have, uh, uh, you know, kind of a slower lifestyle as well. Um, and I have to give her credit because, you know, making this movie really hasn't been easy for any of us and least of all for her. And, you know, but when I asked her a while back, um, she, she told me that she figures that this is kind of the next third of our adulthood. And she realizes, realizes that we aren't really sliding into retirement at 65 and sitting on our rocking chairs and doing nothing. And so to her, this is kind of sliding into an active retirement and it allows us to move into the next phase while we're still able to and pretty much on our own terms. And now, of course, we have a lot of room for the dogs to run, and that's that's probably what's really important to her. <laughs> that's that's great. It's, it's great to have that that common vision, and it's it, it's difficult sometimes when you don't. 
Um, so that's good to hear. Um, what's the biggest challenges you guys have faced in this, in this change to your lifestyle? Well, you know, for the biggest, for me, I think the biggest challenge has been really the poor internet on our farm. Um, you know, we had gigabit fiber optic to the house in Austin. Dude, this is, yeah, <laughs> I'm going backwards like three, you know, three centuries in technology. So I'm currently, uh, running, um, off of a MiFi device when, uh, when I have to connect to the internet at home. Very limited data, very slow. So that's one of the biggest challenges. Um, there is some sense of isolation because I'm, I'm 800 feet from the road. All right. But, you know, honestly, in some ways, there are more interactions with people here when I'm on the farm than when I was surrounded by people. And I do miss the interactions I had with my coworkers when I was back on the job. But, but I have people drop by pretty much all the time and it's always a pleasant surprise. Uh, another challenge is, you know, of course, to, uh, work on obtaining customers. I used to just have to go to a job and the only customer I had was my boss, right? Um, you know, but, but now I've got to have customers. I've got to keep them, make them happy, keep them coming back, figuring all of that out. Well, cause that's all new to me too. And, and so it is a challenge, but in reality, I think it's mostly a learning experience. Very cool. So have you had any real success stories? I know you mentioned you were deeply ingrained in where you lived in the community and that's that makes leaving harder right a lot of times people maybe they have family around and all but if they're not if they're not rooted into the community leaving as well leaving but when you've been living there instead of just existing there it's difficult you miss it sometimes so have you been able to kind of reestablish that at all you know out in 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 Timbuktu Texas well you know well thank you yes here we are in Timbuktu um you know uh you have a really good point there. You know, I wasn't just existing there in Austin. You know, it was my community and that sort of thing. And, you know, before we left, uh, I think it was about 20 or 25 of my friends. Literally, we went and met at Rudy's Barbecue, had barbecue, dinner together, and, and we chatted. And they basically threw me a going-away party for, uh, you know, all of this. And, you know, there were so many of the guys that were going, wow, I wish – I could do this too. And that was cool for me. At the same time, there were a couple of guys going, you're going to do what? So, you know, but, you know, and I miss those people and I miss those connections. And when I go back for a day or two, I try and make sure that, um, you know, I meet uh, as many people as I can for lunch or dinner or something like that. Um, but now that we're in the new, you know, out in the sticks, you know, so we're constantly working on building community here and, you know, so I'm constantly, but I am constantly meeting new neighbors. Well, at least they're new to me, right? And the reality is I'm the new guy. Um, and <clears throat> so neighbors literally drive up my driveway and say, well, I wanted to meet the new guy. And so we've done that. And the other thing too is that, you know, a lot of the, uh, people that you make community with are, the people at the schools where your children are going, right, or baseball practice, soccer, whatever. And so uh, the high school where my daughter is going, uh, you know, we have lots of friends that we've met uh, through actually my daughter going to school with their children. We also have a few church contacts and, you know, from the community as a whole as we've done business with people here in the community. 
So, you know, I've had people drive up, introduce themselves, you know, just because they heard what we're doing and they're interested in local, sustainable, organic and aquaponics. And so, and you know, there's this amazing lady, um, that lives, uh, about an hour from here and she's interested in what I'm doing. And she literally drives an hour every week to come help me raft seedlings. And she brings, you know, her, her family with her or a friend. And it's just really wonderful that she comes and helps me out and turns a six hour task into a, a really quick and wonderful task done with a friend. And so that's really neat. And, you know, community, Jack, isn't about location. I think it's really about being available to others and about making other people a priority in your life. And you can pretty much do that anywhere. Yeah, definitely. And it's good to hear that, that there's an interest in what you're doing. I think a lot of people that aren't from Texas think that, you know, well, maybe Austin, maybe downtown Dallas, but, you know, Texas is a bunch of backwoods people or something, and, and we'd have no interest in kind of things like aquaponics and permaculture. And the reality is... I think that there's a, a very big movement within this state and not just like kind of like the activist level people like yourself and I that go out and, and do it, but there's an interest that I'm seeing from the average person all around, not just here in Texas, but all over the country. I think that's very encouraging. Yeah, it really is. So what caused you to choose aquaponics as your first farming venture? Um, you know, I mean, it's, it requires a learning curve. It requires a, probably a pretty significant investment in infrastructure. So what, what pushed you that way? Well, I just masochistic that way, I guess. <laughs> no. All right. So, um, I guess it was, uh, 2014. I took Jeff Lawton's PDC. I of course had, uh, listened to every podcast you'd done for the last 1500 podcasts. Um, I listened to all of Paul Wheaton's podcasts, uh, Chris Martinson, all these guys, right? And, and I'm, and I'm going, what, what can I do, right? And, and I guess it was about 2014, about the spring of 2014, I started off with a small flock of sheep running around a friend's farm, um, for 18 months, uh, before we moved here. Um, and I also built three top bar beehives, and that was a great experience as well. And I loved having the bees, and I loved keeping the sheep and that sort of thing. But I realized that scaling enough to to have animals or hives make a full-time income would take a significant amount of time and that the income would be sporadic for several years. And so the upfront investment would have been very significant, and the animals have a tendency to die on you, often quite outside of your control. So um, there was that. And then the whole thing about fish and lettuce, you know, I mean, having had that koi pond, um, having grown plants all my life, fish and lettuce, I can wrap my head around that. So I, I figure the biggest risks are temperatures and, and the marketplace. One can be mitigated and the other is a matter of hustling. And so in the end, the system is limited only by one's creativity, uh, space, system size, and that's always expandable. And I know exactly what's going into the system, what's coming out, and when. And now I just need to sell it all of it. You know, I've come around to aquaponics over the years. Uh, and I think living on this rock that I live on has been a big <laughs> part of that. Because I've gotten to where, you know, I don't even – I have my trees, and I've managed to make trees grow in places that trees have no business growing. And that's all good and well. But just gardening here is just – miserable and since we put our little aquaponics system in 
the growth rate, the health of the food, you, you, when you look at it, you can just tell, like, that is healthy. And, and, and the insanity of what I've seen happen, like, we, like, we take our freaking leftover celery bases now and throw them in an ebb and flow bed, and they start growing in two days. You know, and, and they're, they're six inches tall in two weeks. And it's like, that doesn't happen in dirt. Um, so I'm nope. not putting soil down at all. And I think if you have it, you're lucky. I just don't. And I'm starting to realize how many operations similar to yours could be put in and how much more food we could grow locally. And then what always concerned me was the energy requirements. And it's actually a pretty small amount of overall energy for the return if you factor in against things like, well, how much energy does a farmer with a tractor and all this other stuff use, you know, per per kilocalorie or what have you. It's it, it's not insignificant exactly. the amount of energy they use. And you can run an awful lot off a couple pumps, and those are not necessarily you know most energy uh, hungry pumps in the world. No, you're only talking about. Uh, I think for my pump, it's a, like a six foot head, so you only have to move water six feet. That's and the rest of it's all gravity feed. So there you go. But you know, the, and that's the thing: the aquaponics versus soil. You know, and we're trying to do the soil thing as well, right? I mean, I threw out. Uh, some 60 pounds of uh, crimson clover and hairy vetch seed again this fall and so forth into new areas that uh, didn't have them uh, from last year. And uh, we've put in two swales, planted uh, close to 100 fruit trees. Um, by the way, swales work. I'm just saying swales work. If you if you if you if you've been listening to Jack talk about how swales work and you're going yeah right sure right I'm telling you I planted a bunch of trees on swales and a bunch of trees not on swales they each got the same amount of water this summer I got 80% uh excuse me about 90% survival on the swales and about 20% survival without the swale so I'm telling you people swales work and at the same time, we're also doing the chicken thing and we're doing, uh, so really just for eggs and, uh, you know, for ourselves, right? We've only got 10, 10 chickens, I think, 10 hens, and we have one guinea hen as a result of, uh, uh, of a particular fox that I uh. need to help eradicate. So anyway, so yeah, that's my comment about that. And, you know, eventually I want to, uh, be a lettuce farmer that also sells a whole truckload of fruit. Sure, but that takes years, whereas you can grow lettuce in in, in weeks, and that's the fast, yes. quick to market. So exactly. let's talk a little bit about how you're marketing this stuff because I can grow five thousand heads of lettuce, but then I got to sell it to somebody. Or it's good really, luck. Yeah, right. Yeah. So are are you running into <laughs> a lot of people at farmers markets, or I mean, how are you going about this? Well, yeah, so we sell at um, farmers markets, um, and currently, you know, because it's wintertime, most farmers markets out in rural America, they close between October and April. Um, so we're in the Dallas farmers market downtown, and uh, and we're also doing the Crescent market near, uh, just right outside of downtown. Um, and uh, that's that's been a lot of fun, but at the same time, it's not nearly as, um, you know, we, are, we mm, it's hard to sell lettuce in December. Yeah. You know, people look at it and go, uh, so, uh, 
we were selling a whole lot more back in September and October. So December has been a little tight. Um, we also have a few uh, customers with um, restaurants and that sort of thing. And we're talking, we have uh, one retail, um, one retail outlet that's local here in Mineola. And then, um, and I'm also talking to a distributor that, uh, you know, wants to uh, take it and put it into his product mix as well. And so, um, that would be really awesome that, uh, he'd take what's left over and then I would continue building out my retail, uh, customer base. That's awesome because, I mean, you can only talk a guy into buying a $5 box of lettuce so many times before you're like, you know what, dude, really, it's lettuce. You either want it or you don't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> where if you, can, <laughs> if you can move it through, you know, restaurants and stuff, they, they buy by the case, you know, and distributorships, you know, if you, you've set that up. They buy by a truckload. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the way to go. And I think that there's plenty of that market out there. It's just inroads into it because it's a lot of, you know, the mass market crap that's in those, those, those positions. And every time it is. you want shelf space, you have to displace someone who they do a billion dollars a year with, even though it's crap, they do a billion dollars worth of business with them a year. So, right. And then you're trying to displace them. But I think that's happening more and more. And it's, it's because of consumer demand. So the nice thing about people like you that are taking this multi-pronged approach is you're helping other growers, whether you realize it or not. Because you're hitting this farmer's market, and even if they go to a different store, if they become interested in this and they start asking about it, that creates – and so if everybody's doing that, it's the rising tide in all boats type of thing. Well, I certainly hope so. You know, the thing is, too, is that, you know, we talk to a customer, and and sometimes they'll be really interested in aquaponics. We'll be talking to them for 20 minutes about aquaponics, and they'll say, thank you, have a nice day. And they'll walk up, it's like, I just spent 20 minutes with you, and, you know – but um, you know, and, and I think that customers are like, oh, I'm not going to bother him because he's talking to somebody, and and that guy was right. ten packs or something. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but you know, the thing is, is that um, uh, with regards to aquaponics, what's what I found interesting is that the people in the rural farmers markets know about aquaponics a whole lot more than the people in town do. Really? So you get really, it's amazing. I had no idea. So, you know, a bunch of, uh, you know, country guys, I don't know, you know, I mean, let's just say that they're native. Okay. And, uh, you know, they come up and they've got overalls on and they're going, you know, I'm going to build me an aquaponics system and, uh, I'd like to come out and take a look at your system, see how it's done. Wow. And, you know, stuff like that. Right. And in Dallas, not so much. They all think aquaponics and hydroponics are essentially the same thing. So, uh, you know, so a lot of them have heard of hydroponics. They've seen, you know, growing food in a warehouse in Tokyo or something yeah. like that, right? And, or growing and, the, the sacred herb in Denver. <laughs> for example, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I cannot tell you how many times I had someone – Bring that up. So are you going to grow that special stuff in you your greenhouse? Hydro, dude. Are you doing like hydro? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Can you see through that greenhouse plastic? Yeah. Oh, wow, man. When they make it legal. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, and, and so, yeah, so there's a lot of that um, when it comes to aquaponics, hydroponics, that sort of thing. People kind of equate it with 
doing, uh, you know, marijuana. Yeah. But um, what do you tell people when they say, "Well, what is aquaponics? What is your, you know, your your elevator explanation?" Well, uh, this is something my wife came up with, but I think it's kind of cute. Um, which is, you know, we feed the fish, the fish feed the plants, and the plants feed us. And and then when I expand on that, or I'm asked kind of what the difference between uh, aquaponics and hydroponics is, I say that in hydroponics, you know, they're growing plants in a miracle grow solution um, versus growing plants in a solution of fertility provided by the biology of the fish doing what fish uh, naturally do. And so one is a chemical solution to growing food, and the other is a biological solution to growing food. And, Jack, I tell people that when it comes to my food, I prefer biology over chemistry, even though back in high school I did better in chemistry than I did in biology. <laughs> Just be honest with you. Can you so, talk? yeah. So, go, go sorry. Ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, went, I was done. Okay. I know you were. Uh, anyway, um, let's talk about your setup, like what it is. How it's set up, you know, what its mm -hmm. potential is. And like, how did you, how did you find it? So did you do this out of pocket, you know, from savings? Did you, were you able to get any kind of NRCS grant money? Or, I mean, cause it's pretty, it's, it's not like, it's not like mine where you, you walk in and, in, in a couple days with some buddies, slap together a 12 by 12 greenhouse and throw a wing on it for a grow tunnel. Yours is pr very professional. Well, thank you, Jack. I'm glad someone thinks so. Um, but, you know, oh, so let me give you a sense of scale. Um, we bought the farm in August, at the end of August uh, 2015. And today is, what, December 7th, 2016. So it's been a year and a quarter. Yep. Um, the first nine months I spent building literally the hoop house. Uh, we had some issues with that because there was a very rainy fall and a rainy spring. Literally, my water table was six inches below the surface. Now, I know that you're probably going, what a pleasant thing to have happen. Well, <laughs> <laughs> water table six inches down. Yeah. My plants will never you know, go dry. No. Um, well, believe me, the water table falls just as fast because I'm on beach sand, okay? Gotcha. And, um, and so – Digging uh, a post hole in this particular area at that particular time was like digging, like going down to the beach down there at Corpus Christi, okay, going right to the water's edge and putting, you know, and trying to dig a hole, right? And it just fills in as fast as you can dig it out. So I literally, on many occasions, had to wait a week or two weeks for for the soil to dry out enough so that I could dig a hole to put a to put one of these posts in. So it took me nine months um, to build the greenhouse itself. Um, it probably would have taken four months if I'd had better weather and, and, and that sort of thing. But it was basically me and my son, uh, my oldest son helped uh, for a while, lived here on the farm with us. And then, um, and then uh, we got a farmhand who was a friend of the family. He was a really good kid. And he had spent a little time uh, on the West Coast working in uh, hydroponics situations similar to what we talked about earlier. Anyway, and so uh, he came out and helped, and we finished off the aquaponics system. So the greenhouse itself is 6,600 square feet. It's 150 feet long, and it's 44 feet wide. It's actually two hoop houses uh, kind of chained together with a gutter right down the middle. It's a 20 foot and a 24 foot greenhouse, 
150 feet long. Um, and then inside of that, we currently have two 1,000-gallon fish tanks. We have a couple of 110-gallon uh, induction tanks that we're using as swirl filters. Um, and that's to remove the solids. That then uh, goes down into – the water then goes from there into 200 square feet of media bed. And for the media, I couldn't find any properly sized expanded shale, so we had to go with uh, three-quarter inch to one-inch granite gravel. <clears throat> and then from the granite gravel, uh, there are six media beds right there. And then from there, it goes down into a deep water culture bed, which is 96 feet long by 16 feet wide. And that's where we have the rafts, and that's where we grow the lettuce. And then the water goes into a sump where the pump is and you know now we and now we're in a loop so that's kind of how the description is of of the aquaponic system cool now what what I I don't think you said in there is how did you finance all this did you do this out of pocket was you know right oh you're right I did not tell you how that um so you know Austin is experiencing what you might consider a real estate bubble okay Right. Ah. <laughs> I see where this is going. <laughs> so, you know, real estate bubbles are great if you sell at the top. Yep. Or at least sell, sell somewhere, somewhere along the somewhere side. Somewhere in the bubble. <laughs> right. Exactly. So we bought, we bought a, um, we downsized actually as a result of the, uh, oldest child going off to college. Um, he was in a very nice little private liberal arts university or liberal arts college. And that was expensive, and uh, we decided we needed to downsize. So we downsized to a to a house that was actually a little bit more accessible to work and everything else. Um, and three years later, we sold that house for fifty percent more than we bought it for. If that gives you a sense, yeah, of, yes. And and you're looking at that, and you're going, okay, that's a bubble. Um, and so you know, really, you know, and I did spend twenty seven years in high tech, so. We do have we did have savings and we had uh, you know essentially no debt um, before you know mortgaging this property and uh, so that's that's how we that's how we financed putting this all together. Plus, my wife still actually works a day job and so she drives back and forth to Austin uh, once a week and uh, works from home on the days that she's uh, here. Oh wow! Wow. I, so I was, I was, it's, it is hard. Whoa, 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 whoa. And then you said once a week. I'm like, oh, okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know where you're at. I mean, that's all. That's a commute if you're doing that daily. I mean, I thought I had a commute, but holy crap. Um, well, that's good that she's able to do that. And I think more and more people can. There's, you know, and to me, unless you're in a factory on a line screwing lamps together or something, most jobs can be done remotely. They really can. And, uh, it always amazes me when employers are like, but how do I trust them? I'm like, if you don't trust them, why do you hire them, right? And and do you even yeah, care? Like if the workload comes out that you're expecting, I don't care how you – I was always like that as a boss. I don't give a – if you want to hire someone to do your right. job for you and subcontract your workout, as long as it doesn't suffer and I don't know about it, I'm good, you know? Um, so that that's interesting. Um, I don't know if you'd be comfortable doing this. But mm-hmm. what was – would you be willing to disclose the cost of that that tunnel? Okay. So the tunnel itself was $14,700, okay. I think, for the tunnel itself. Okay. 
Um, the labor cost to flatten the area out was, I think, $1,100 to do that with a bulldozer. Okay. Which I think, honestly, I was ripped off. But I was the new guy and they came in and said, Oh, you're going to pay up for this. Um, and yeah, so there's the new guy syndrome and there's also the driveway price point, right? When they drive up and you live in a shack, yeah. you're, you're not paying a lot. When you drive up and you live in a nice house, it's like, Oh, the price just got higher. Yep. yep. So, um, so there is some of that out here. Um, now the, you know, so, uh, let's see, the, um, aquaponic system, let's see, the fish tanks were, I think, about $600 a piece. The liners, the liners weren't bad. Uh, we're using Duraskrim on the liner. Okay. And that's a, I think it's a 20 mil Duraskrim. And the large one, I think, uh, size I got was 110 foot by 20. And that was, uh, maybe 500 and something dollars. So considering the size, you know, very reasonable. Sure. Um, uh, and then, I don't know, a couple thousand dollars on lumber. And, uh, then I had, I had the post, I had some fencing guys actually put in the post because I'm going, that's 200 post. I'm going to let someone else do that part. Sure. Oh, and I so I paid that. some guys, the, I paid the guy that does fencing that built a fence in our backyard to do that. So, uh, that kind of made sense for me. But, uh, you know, those are the the numbers that would otherwise be, you know, difficult to uh, get a sense of. But I, I think probably total somewhere around $50,000 to build it. Which in a sense is a standalone farm at that point. So when you look at it that way. Pretty much. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, the thing is we're, we're also, you know, the problem is now, okay, what do you feed the fish? Sure. That's your, that's your main input, right? That is my main input, um, right? And I also use some um, uh, liquid seaweed for the mineral content, and uh, that's really not too bad, believe it or not. Um, but the organic fish food, not really easy to find, and only available in one place in the country. It has to be shipped from Colorado, and uh, you know, honestly, hamburgers cheaper. I could feed them hamburger cheaper than I could feed them this. Um, so, um, you know, that's, <laughs> there is that. And then, you know, you've got the electricity, the fans, so forth. We spent a thousand dollars on tilapia, um, a couple hundred dollars on perch and catfish. Now what's interesting too, is you, you know, we've talked about fish all the time, right? On the survival podcast in an aquaponic system and it turns out that tilapia are hardy little bastards they are they are yeah they're amazing with them. if i have a floater it's a catfish <laughs> almost every time you really? know yeah i have you know one out of every 20 floaters is a tilapia i think i've had one total floating tilapia wow you know and i don't know probably one catfish a week you know, floats and there's no telling why it just floats. Yeah. And, uh, so, so that's something that, uh, people are interested in knowing, you know, what, what, you know, they're always asking, what fish do you use? Catfish, bluegill, tilapia. Oh, I bet catfish are really awesome. Eh, not so much. They're good eating, but they're, there's the other thing about catfish <laughs> is you just feel very wasteful when you clean a catfish. They're like half head, you know, I mean, that's, that's that's true. That's true. Now, um, 
that said, of course, you know, tilapia have this other problem of dying in 55 to 50 yeah. to 55 degree water. That tends to be a problem. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, uh, I met with a guy yesterday, uh, and he's going to help me, um, put together a rocket mass water heater and cool. maybe even, maybe even do two, do two of them. And so, you know, what we've also been doing is doing tours and, and that sort of thing of the farm. Cause I, every time I'm out at the farmer's market or I meet people, they're going, Oh, I want to come see what it is you're doing. Right. And most of these people, you know, claim that they want to be able to build a, you know, a little backyard system, you know, something like that. And, and, you know, and, and honestly, if I said yes to every, why don't you just come out anytime, right? Sure. I, I literally have someone interrupting me for an hour and a half every single day. And honestly, right. And they would totally interrupt my soap opera watching. I just can't have that. So, <laughs> so we, we started a meetup group on meetup.com for East Texas Aquaponics. So if you're in the area, go find East Texas Aquaponics on meetup.com. And for example, we're doing a tour this coming Sunday. And then I think the week after that, we're going to build a hobby sized unit out of a couple of IBC totes. Um, and then in a few weeks, we're going to build one, uh, rocket mass water heater. And then we're going to do a class and build the second one on the rocket mass water heater. Um, and I suspect that uh, there's some people that might be interested in coming to, uh, to see, to see that as well take part in that. Um, and so that's a couple of weeks from now, but we, you know, yeah, I don't have the schedule yeah. uh, quite pinned no, down cool. for that. Yeah. I wholly endorse the idea of we're going to build one and then we're going to do a class and build another one. Um, it always, right. always, always works better when you build one first before you do a class on it, because that way you get all the kinks out. You find all the little things you didn't, you know, plan on. Right. You you, have you ever done anything the right the first time? You, Sometimes you get a timeline on the build and you go, okay, I can't do this in a day, but what I can do is <laughs> this, this, and this, and then I can do it in a day, that type of thing. Right. Have you ever done anything right the first time, Jack? Uh, I, I've done it not completely wrong, but I don't know if it's been right. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and that's, that's one of those things, you know, because if you have, you know, and, and honestly, I was thinking about having a class next weekend doing this and that we would just start slapping it together. I'm going, no, 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 That's going to be a real problem. I, I, I had this, this vision in my head of, you know, here I am assembling the parts and so forth from whatever design I might've happened to have used. And, you know, and someone's sitting over my shoulder, well, why are you doing that? What's that for? What's going on? What, you know, that sort of thing. It's like, Oh geez, last thing I need is that kind of, Thank you very much. Right. And so it'll be, I, th I think it'll be a whole lot better to build one and then have a class. Let's build another one, have a hands on type class to, uh, build the second one. And so it'll be fun and, uh, well worth the, uh, time. And it's one of those things too that I think people are really interested in seeing how to do, uh, a project where you can heat water because uh, you know, if you can heat water, you can heat your house. If you can heat water, you can have a shower. And, you know, everybody knows how to build a fire and how to use a wood stove or even a rocket mass uh, heater, something like that. 
but um, but there's not a lot of experience with heating water in that particular situation outside of putting a bucket over a fireplace. You yeah, know? you bring you bring up a good point there, and it's something I'd kind of forgotten about, and something that many people probably have never even experienced. But you know, I grew up in the Northeast in a house that was 150 years old. It was built before the Civil War. And, you know, so there was no power in it. There was no nothing in it until that was added throughout the year. So it was kind of pieced together. But, the you know, the earliest form of reliable heat other than a wood stove or a coal stove was, you know, a furnace down in the cellar and radiators, which right. basically just metal cast iron things that hot water goes through. And then they radiate heat out. And if you can heat water, you can run radiators. If you can run, And I'll tell you what. There's something about the warmth off those things that I miss. Like it's cold today, and you know we don't have the heat on in the house because we don't really mm -hmm. need it. But I know if I turn the central heat on, it's not going to be like when I was a little kid came in out of the snow, and there was just something about the way that heat penetrated. So I, I really hadn't thought about you know running a, a rocket mass heater to run a radiator heating system, but it. It, it certainly seems to have potential. And, of course, you can always throw your wet clothes on them, and it, they dry, like, almost immediately when you do that. All kinds of cool stuff. Right. Radiators. We, right. we had a wood-covered one, and, it, you know, so the heat came out of the front, and the top was just, like, nice and warm. So that would be where my grandma would always put dope bread dough to rise. You know, I mean, it just kind of never even thought about that. So cool. Now I'm all nostalgic right. for the time of my life that actually sucked. So. <laughs> Those are the good old days, Jack. Yeah. The good yeah, old days. Saying nostalgia is a lying bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's actually nostalgia is a seductive liar. I think that's the actual quote. Um, that's are there true. Any features other than you've been talking about, kind of planning into this uh, this rocket mass heater thing that you think are really unique in your system. You know, I got a couple of things that. Um, I added to our system that I haven't seen anywhere else out there. You know, I mean, I spent five years, Jack, I mean, hours every single day. You probably, you probably live that lifestyle too, right? With yep. what you're doing, um, of doing research, right? And so I'm researching permaculture. I'm researching aquaponics. I'm researching all this stuff. And I've never seen a video with these two particular features. The first feature is that for, um, the media beds, I don't use a bell siphon. Okay. So, uh, a bell siphon, uh, has, well, there's a lot of failure points with a bell siphon. Okay. And it requires a lot of tinkering. If the water comes in too fast, it doesn't break the uh, cycle. If it comes in too slow, it may not quite start the cycle. If you get roots in the bell siphon, you know, things go wonky. So it requires a lot of tinkering. And so um, each media bed uh, has an overflow standpipe to set the maximum height of the water level. But it has a second uh, pipe, which is actually just the, you know, uh, it's just the uh, bulkhead. And underneath it is a solenoid valve that's hooked up to a Christmas tree timer that opens up for about an hour to drain the bed. And then it closes for an hour to allow it to fill. So that's the first thing. Oh, that's actually brilliantly. Hold on, let me let me let me get that one in. So you're gonna we, write that we, down. We've got, we've got an we've got an overflow water set that that comes up. I'm guessing mm -hmm. eight inch, five, four inches, something from the surface. Oh, it's, the, 
It's it's about an you know what three quarters of an inch below the gravel. Okay, so that's so and there's about nine inches or ten inches of gravel. Okay, so you got you know eight and a half inches of standing water there or something like that, and then you just have this 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 big ass opening down at the bottom, and there's just a solenoid there and it just opens and completely drains and then closes and then it can fill back up, but it's so it's an ebb and flow. It's just the timing is controlled by a different technology. The timing is controlled literally by you know the a light switch uh, timer that you yeah. you know, use to uh, make and, the and thieves think that like uh, someone's in the house. If you, somebody didn't like the frequency you're using because of what they're growing, you could set that frequency to anything you wanted. Right, and I could literally no have it drain like, all day long and then you know fill once a day or yeah. like if you're doing tomatoes or something, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. Could do that. So go on to the next one now because I wanted to get my head on that and that's interesting. It it might help with something we want to do here. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to be well, helpful. Uh, just to kind of, you know, tell you how that might be helpful to us. We want to run more ebb and flow, but mm-hmm. you know, with an aquaponics system, you want to sump. It's as deep and low in the ground as possible. And right. here that's 11 inches and that's not very deep. So when you're running ebb and flow, if the water coming back down the return pipe runs into itself. If it starts to back up, it kills the siphon. So right. with what you're doing, it doesn't matter. The water's Pretty just going to hell go back to where it belongs anyway. So that's very cool. It Water travels downhill, Jack. Yep, yep. So that's to make one that of happen, Jeff we've Lott's had to put our rules. grow beds really high, right? Like they're like, my, my grow beds are like tits high, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, and right. I mean, shorter people need a stool, Right, so <laughs> there's an interesting opportunity there. So cool, I've I've learned something cool today. So what else you got for me? All right. Oh, and the other thing too is uh, you need to upsize your solenoid valve okay. because the opening in a solenoid valve is not the same. So if you use a three quarter inch solenoid valve, it is not like having a three quarter inch pipe. I got you. So you need to upgrade to maybe an inch or an inch and a quarter. Yeah. On that. Uh, so so. Just upsize that if if uh, three quarters of an inch is uh, you know not quite enough for you. All right, second thing I do that's unique is that the drain in the fish tank, is, um, you know, very common to use a solid or solid bottom lifting overflow. But what I added was to have the addition of an overflow standpipe. Okay, and then what I used was one of those uh, rubber Schedule 40 connectors. Then I, I you know there's this uh, a U, okay, an elbow that goes over so to to set the height of the water um, coming up from the bottom, and so I'm able to get water uh, level set with the overflow standpipe, and also pull up solids from the very bottom. So it basically is able to pull the floating solids off the top of the uh, fish tank, and also remove the solids from the bottom of the fish tank. And when I've had my GoPro aimed down there at the bottom of the fish tank, there's almost no solids down at the bottom of the fish tank at all. That's so cool. apparently it seems to work very well. And so I haven't seen any of those used uh, on any YouTube video I've ever seen. Uh, and so, I, you know, it seems like an obvious solution, but I haven't seen any videos for it. So maybe it's unique. You know, you mentioned the solids filter. And, and what we've already determined talking to our, our duck egg customers that are gardeners like, yeah, we can put the stuff out of the solids filter into a jug and sell it to them for 10 bucks. <laughs> They'll buy it as a concentrated fertilizer. I, you know, hold on a second. I have to go write that down. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. 
I mean, you know, I mean, I pull out ten gallons of fine fish fertilizer. Yep. And I had not considered the idea that I might be able to sell that off. I mean, I mean I've just been putting on my, you know, fruit trees. You can use it, and you know, you can dilute it. <laughs> so when you explain to somebody if you diluted it, let's say, eight to one, right? That they're getting mm -hmm. eight gallons for ten bucks. Then all of a sudden they're, well, yeah, that works. And when they see the way things grow, they're like, wow. So they know the nutrient power of that stuff. And, um, I mean, I don't know how much of it you can sell, but, <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd bring – when I went to the farmer's market, you got tons of people that – they go to farmer's markets and they don't freaking buy nothing because they garden, they grow everything that's at the farmer's market. You know? So I did have – yeah. I grew yeah. that and I grew that and I grew that and so – but Funny story, Jack. Funny story, Jack. Back in August, I was I was selling lettuce, right? I I have a 200 square foot evaporative cooling wall, which keeps the temperature inside the greenhouse, maybe in the high 80s when it's 100 degrees outside. Okay, and so I was at the farmers market selling lettuce. This lady walks by and she says, "Oh, thank you very much, but I grow my own lettuce in my garden." I'm going, "Not in August, you aren't." Not, not oh, yes, I do. Don't. No, you aren't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it ain't happening, Not lady. Right Sorry. Anyway, yeah. True. You know, hey, that gives me something else to sell, dude. I like that. That's really awesome. I yeah. can go get a couple of one-gallon jugs, uh, you know, and sell it as concentrated fish fertility. Yep. Yep. Organic Ten or something. Ten a gallon at least, man. I mean, you know. Easy. These fish works hard. These fish work hard on this, man, you know. They do. That's right. <laughs> mm. That's and a that great starts to help recycle Thanks, some of your feed cost, right? Because that's that's the excess feed. <laughs> that's you know that's that's the feed after it's been processed, you know, so to speak. So you know if that can knock off even twenty percent right. of your feed bill, that makes you know the whole thing a lot more doable. I hear what you're saying too about feed. Like, <laughs> we were very lucky to find Texas Naturals to be able to feed our birds because when you start looking for you know, even if you're willing to pay for it, just anything other than standard feed, that's like the biggest limit most small producers had. I told you not to worry about dogs if they barked in your area, and I've got them here now. So, anyway, um, can you uh, can you let people know how they can find out more about what you're doing? Absolutely. Well, you know, uh, we're high tech people, so high tech people have lots of fingers in the social media world. So you can find us on Facebook, obviously, Instagram. Twitter, um, let's see what else. Oh, and uh, of course, EastTexasAquaponics.com and SpotOnFarm.com. SpotOnFarm is really the kind of the permaculture universe of our existence, and East Texas Aquaponics is, of course, the aquaponics side because we figured that we really needed to separate those out because it's probably something of a different audience both ways. Sure. Oh, and Meetup.com. Sorry, I see I forget. <laughs> it's too too many things, too many irons in that fire. Very so cool, yeah. Man. So um, I've got links to Spot on Farm and East Tur Texas Aquaponics in the show notes. I also went on your YouTube channel and so you had a whole bunch of stuff there. So I took the playlist that you have uh, for the aquaponics <laughs> stuff and I have a link to that in the show notes if people want to check your operation out. And it's it's really cool. You mentioned the evaporative cooling, and I did have one more question before we wrap up. So does sure. that evaporative cooler? using water from a secondary source, or is it using water that's being recirculated through the system itself? If I use the water from the system, the amount of mineral content yeah. within the water would crust up my evaporative cooler pretty quick, Stank I suspect. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it might smell. Yeah, that's a what little. I was thinking. You know, yeah, like maybe a lot. Smell wafting through. So I didn't think that was the case, but I figured I'd ask because it. Yeah. So, so that's cool. And now, what's amazing is how much water that thing uses. I mean, you think, well, you know, keeping sixty-six hundred square feet sort of reasonable in the summertime, that's got to take a lot of energy, and it does actually. The fans on the other side of the greenhouse uh two with what four 48 inch fans that are pulling about 75,000 cubic feet um maybe 70,000 cubic feet per uh is it minute wow. and so yeah so it basically empties out the greenhouse of air about every 50 seconds recycles that through uh approximately and the we use a sump for the water from the evaporative cooling wall and that's a 150 gallon poly uh stock tank rubber made stock tank and uh the pump to run that is actually i think 1900 gallons an hour to run that and uh and it uses probably 200 gallons of water in on in august oh, per wow. day wow so uh yeah we had to literally refill that stock tank before we had the auto fill valve in that thing we had to refill that stock tank two or three times a day. I bet you're glad it's there, though. <laughs> you have no idea. Yeah. Actually, it's on a hot summer day. It's the best place on the farm to be. I, is I right know. inside that evaporative cooling wall. You know, the, the the air is moving really nice. It's almost like a breeze, and it's just coming off that wall at about 78 degrees. It is awesome. Very cool, man. Well, hey, I, I hope you continue to build it out, and if uh, you ever have updates, we'd love to have you back on the show, and I, I appreciate you being with us today, man. Well, thank you. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and uh, you know, I just want I just want people out there who are contemplating making a change in their life, right? That are you know heads down in a cubicle right now, wishing that uh, they could go do something else. It's like it's a, it's a leap of faith. And honestly, it's just a leap, right? And you'll never get there if you don't get started. So get started now, get prepped, get prepared, learn everything you can, and then just jump in with both feet and, you know. And when you don't have any backup, you know, if you don't have a plan B, plan A better work. Yeah. Yeah, the amazing thing about that is you, you generally change plan A a whole bunch of times, but you figure out how to make it work because you, you're, you're in a position where you need to. So, That's exactly right. Uh, great words That's of wisdom. And as I think you put it in your application, step off the cliff, right? Step off exactly. the cliff and, and, and make it. And then you're going to fly or you're going to splat, but at least you won't be where you are. And I mean, I'd say, I'd say, <laughs> You know, if you don't want to be hey, where you are, brother. that's one way to get out of it. So, I mean, the other thing I would add to that is people always think, well, someday, someday. And I think you had that, that kind of come to Jesus moment where you're like, well, if I wait for someday, someday might not happen. And, and, and generally yes. people think it's somehow going to get easier as they're more and more entrenching themselves in a lifestyle. So generally the easiest time was 10 years ago and the next easiest time is today. It's like planting a tree. When should you have planted it 10 years ago? The yeah. next best play time is today, but don't wait another 10 years. So, uh, Man, I yes, appreciate you absolutely. sharing your story and, and your thoughts. And, uh, uh, again, thank you for being on the air with us today. It's a great story, uh, an inspiring uh, life decision. And I think it goes to show you that if there's something you really want to do, you can you can get it done. It may not all be easy. Sometimes it might be really tough, but you can make it happen. Um, 
I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did and you want to hear more shows like it, you know that the best way you can uh, make sure that we're always here to, 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 to provide this stuff for you is join the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. And that's all I'll say about that today because I have a, a little bit longer of a close. Oh, the other way you can help support us, and it's a really easy and completely painless way, is just to do your Amazon shopping through tspaz.com. Uh, if you listen to the show every day and you think it gives you, give you some value, and, and then you're going to go to Amazon and buy something anyway, instead of go to Amazon.com, go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. And uh, when you get there, you'll see a link. You click through that link over to Amazon, do your shopping, and you just supported the Survival Podcast for not one penny out of your pocket. Additionally, every day I put out a review, every weekday anyway, I put out a review uh, of Amazon items. Today is one I've, I, it's been coming a long time. But I had to work some things out and figure out who I really wanted to recommend in this space. And it's uh, for portable LED lanterns. And I actually believe that the, uh, the Streamlight Siege Lantern is the best LED lantern. I've recommended that in the past. I've already done a review of it. And I still think that it is. It's also, for the little one, it's like $26. Bucks. The medium-sized one's like $36, which is equivalent to what I'm going to tell you about today in, in light and size. And then the rechargeable one's like 100 bucks. Um, so I wanted something that was cheap. And there's all these, I see infomercials, I see everything with these little pop-up LED lanterns, and they range from, you know, six bucks a piece to 12, 15 bucks a piece. And when you start researching them, you realize the housing on them, the external housing is almost identical. Uh, they're all probably coming from the same plant, but they're being ordered by different OEMs, uh, because there's difference in the circuitry, the wiring, the contacts, all of that stuff. And some are reported to be brighter, some have more diffused light, on and on and on and on. Well, the company that I've recommended for so many things out there is a company called eTech City. And I love eTech City because they have so many, so many different cool things. I have these little remote controls I put on in the past. You plug into a wall, you number them one through five, you get a remote control with on and off or one through five. You push a button, the outlet goes live, you push a button, the outlet goes off. So, for instance, right now we have the Christmas tree and all the stuff that the wife built, like this Christmas tree forest of lights in the living room, and all of the plugs are behind it, and it's a pain in the butt to get back there and shut them off at night. If I don't, the light blares into the room. I just pick up my remote control, push two buttons, all the lights go out. And when I, when I, when I get up and we want them on, you just turn them back on. i got a light way back in the corner that's like behind a potted plant and all. It's there. It's a great light. We never use it because it's a pain in the ass to get to. Pop one of those in, click on, click off. Right, so I like eTech City, and I'm reading, and they have this deal: four of these things for like 26 bucks. They're like 650 a piece, which is dirt cheap for this kind of a product. And I start reading the uh, the the reviews, and it's like they have like 1,020 reviews, and it's a five star average review. Well, that's pretty good, but there's always some one star reviews, and a lot of times one star reviews are by morons, you know. Uh, I, I, all I did was throw it in a pool and now it doesn't work or something stupid like that. But as I started reading the one and two star reviews, I found the same complaint. I got it, it either, and one of them just didn't work out of the box or it worked one time and then it stopped working and it won't work again. And I'm like, well, that's something, you know, you're selling thousands a day of this low end product. There's going to be some failures, but I don't want to be the guy that recommends something like that to you and then you get it and you're pissed at me over a $6 lantern that I make a quarter on, right? I just didn't want to be that guy. So I started researching, well, let's look at all of the lanterns in this space. 
And every one, it was like a clone of a clone of a clone. No matter how different they were with some of the design specs, really great reviews, a few one- and two-star reviews, DOA, or use once and dead. There's a commonality here. Well, the reason I like eTech City isn't that they just have really cool stuff. It's because they have really great service. So I emailed eTech City and said, hey, look, I, I sell a lot of your stuff on Amazon. I recommend you guys all the time. I want to recommend these lanterns. I understand that you would, you know, if you sell a lot of these things, you would have some failures. What I'm concerned with is, do you, what do you do when you have a failure? What's your return policy? What's your replacement policy? In less than an hour, this is the email that I returned, that got returned to me from eTech City. Hello, Jack. Thank you for reaching out to us, and thank you for all the feedback. We appreciate it. Honestly, we sell hundreds, if not a thousand, of these lanterns a day, and we do have some problems with them. They are not perfect. Typically, the main issue is a little toggle switch at the base that likely during shipping breaks. And once in a while, a top lantern is cracked or loose, loose again, probably due to shipping. Once the lantern makes it to the customer and they arrive in good order, we never hear from the customer because they seem not to fail with normal use. We usually only hear from customers at the moment they open the package and find damage, and then we immediately send out a replacement, and then all lanterns come with a one-year warranty. They are not the world's greatest lantern, but for around $6 each, they are one of Amazon's best sellers, and we think for the price, they are the best around. Thank you. I was done. I ordered some. They're awesome. All of mine worked. I'm recommending them. I'm recommending them because at $6.50 a piece, you can put one in every room of your house during a blackout. You can do what Jeff Yargo said, and up where your light fixture is, put a little hook and just hang it up there. You know, nobody sees the hook until you need the hook, and then it's there. And it's cheap. And, you're, and it uses AA, three AA batteries. By the way, they come with a set of batteries. They're not the greatest batteries, but they come with batteries. Um, so there's 12 batteries. That's eight bucks worth of batteries for a $25 set of four lanterns. I ordered two sets. So, so we literally can light the whole place up during a blackout without having to drag out the generator right away and without having, you know, just having that interim time, or during a long term, now we can recharge our AA and loops and, and use them in there. They're just great for the money. Best LED lantern I know of, the Streamlight Siege. Best value, these. You can find out more of about, about them at tspaz.com. I also wanted to point something out. I did see some complaints where people you know, had pictures and they corroded batteries in the battery compartment and messed up the device. Okay, first of all, if you ever have an electronic device damaged by leaking batteries, the battery manufacturer is required to replace or provide the replacement cost of the device by the law. Exactly how you do that, I don't know, but that's been verified by several sources. I've never had to do it, so I'm not sure. And if, honestly, if it happened to a $6 lantern, I'm not probably going through the bullshit over 6 bucks. But that's the case. doesn't help you, though, does it? When it's a blackout, you go to get your lantern, and it doesn't work, and it's all corroded and nasty in there. This is my rule for batteries, period. Unless a device is used regularly, do not store it with batteries in it. I do this with flashlights. I do this with my remote microphones. I do this with everything. I only leave batteries in something that's going to get used at least a once a week or once every other week at most. That's going to wear the battery down. It's going to be used, and it's going to be, you know, okay, you're going to know the battery's weak, and you're going to replace it. I keep my lanterns and my flashlights and stuff in my blackout kit. There's Ziploc bags in there with four sets of batteries per device. Now, you don't have to go that far, but that's what I do. And I never have that problem with anything. And again, yeah, it shouldn't happen, but you can be right 
or you can have light. All right, remember that today. You can be right or you can have light. The choice is yours. So that's my review today. I went a little long with that because I think it's a good product. I think it's good that you guys know the extra steps I'll take before I'll endorse a product. I ordered it. Mine was great, but I got these credible complaints, and I just don't think you're going to build a $6 lantern and not have some of them fail. The important thing is, is the company that sells it willing to step up and make it right. E-Tech City does. That's why I like them. Okay, next up, um, it is... The um, 7th of December, the day that would live in infamy, the day that the United States entered World War II. And I have something that I've been considering when I'm going to share it, and I can't think of a better day other than today. And I've told parts of this story before. But what you're actually going to hear is an audio reading of an article I've written that's not yet published. Um, I'm, we're, we're putting together some photographs and things like that, and actually we want to put it out not just as an article, but with the audio and a YouTube video as well. And it, it, it started this way. Dorothy and I started noticing on Facebook uh, pictures of people like Ellen DeGeneres and Tom Hanks getting the, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And it, it seems ridiculous to me that these actors and celebrities and, and artists are being given this medal. Um, because in our family, we have somebody that received the predecessor to this medal, Before it was called the Presidential Medal of Freedom, it was simply called the U.S. Medal of Freedom, and it was established in 1945, and my wife's grandfather received one. And to me, everything about the people that sacrificed at that time is cheapened in honor by turning this medal into something that's given out to celebrities and starlets. It really is. So I wrote the article that you're about to hear, and uh, I'll tell you that when I read it, I had to stop three different times and start again because of my voice cracking as I, as I thought about the sacrifices that were made. This isn't from the Pacific Theater. This is from the European Theater. Um, Dorothy's grandfather was a police chief um, in the Netherlands uh, when they fell to the Nazi occupation. Here you go. I've noticed a lot of memes lately criticizing President Obama for presenting the Medal of Freedom, which is the highest honor a civilian can receive in our nation, to people like Ellen DeGeneres and Tom Hanks. I will say that this does disgust me, but unlike many on the right, it has nothing to do with Tom's politics or Ellen's stance on gay marriage. If you go to Wikipedia, you will notice that it was in the late 60s and early 70s that these things started being handed out to celebrities musicians, and the politically connected. That is what disgusts me. Why does it disgust me? Well, this medal was established in 1963, but when that was done, it replaced a prior medal. That medal was called the U.S. Medal of Freedom. It was first established in 1945, and a member of our family was one of the first to receive it. This was my wife's grandfather. In the underground during World War II, he was called Cappy Marie a call sign that, fortunately for him, kept the Nazis looking for a woman for most of the war. Old Cappy was a police chief in the Netherlands, and when the Germans occupied it, when the occupation began, the Germans took his house for an office and tossed Cappy and his family into the streets. They did leave local law enforcement in place, though, which gave Cappy some freedoms and privileges others didn't enjoy. So the entire family used this advantage by joining the underground 
and aiding with things like providing information to the Allies and assisting Jews with escaping the occupied territories. Eventually, the family was split up. My wife's father joined the Dutch Marines after the Netherlands were liberated. To do so, he had to lie about his age because he wanted to serve, and, well, he also wanted three meals a day, as, like most, he was near starvation by this time. By then, Cappy had been captured. He was in a prison cell with a Catholic priest. One day, the men came for the priest to have him shot. The priest had made a rosary with mattress strings and a piece of wood carved into a cross. The priest handed Cappy the rosary and told him, Pray, you're going to need it, and bravely walked away to his own death. Cappy was told, We will come for you tomorrow. That night, Cappy prayed for a miracle, and be it by grace, providence, or luck, a miracle did occur. That very night, in what were to be his final hours, the Allies advanced and liberated the area he was being held in. He was set free, and at almost six feet tall, now weighed under a hundred pounds. He was likely close to death from starvation alone. Once he was tended to and told of the rest of his family being together and where his son was, in the Marines about to be shipped to the Pacific, he was also told, for what you have done, you can have anything you want. His words were simple, I want my son, and I want to go to America. He soon had his son, and due to the circumstances, his son, my wife's father, was transferred to the military police and would serve his five years of enlistment in Europe as the family had given enough. It would take some time, but eventually he and his wife would come to America, as would his son and his son's new wife. In time, they would all become U.S. citizens, which to them was a dream come true. But something else happened before he came to America. Future president and then commander of the Allied forces in Europe, General Eisenhower, would receive a notice that Cappy was to receive a relatively new honor called the Medal of Freedom, and the commander was to present this medal to Cappy. So in this photo, which hung for years on my father-in-law's wall, you see the Medal of Freedom ribbon with gold palm, the rosary he prayed for his life with, and a photo. In that photo, you see Dwight David Eisenhower awarding Cappy the Medal of Freedom. It was an honor in return for risking his life so that others may live. This is the story of Andres Vandermeulen. It is a story of heroism and one man and his family doing what they could at risk to their own lives to save others in the middle of hell. It is a unique story to our family and a proud heritage to fulfill, but it isn't unique to the time. In these dark hours, many such people did many such brave things. Some were honored, some today are well known. Others went quietly back to their lives, and their risks were never honored or even known to any, save to those they helped. And others, others were taken, perhaps one day before freedom was to come, shot and tossed into a shallow grave or upon a pile of bodies. So I'm sorry, people like Mr. Hanks and Ms. DeGeneres are fine people. They have brought awareness of many issues to people all over the world. Whether you agree with them or not politically is not important. I take no exception with them being honored in some way by any president who chooses to do so. What disgusts me is that so many presidents have cheapened the meaning of this honor by presenting it to artists, comedians, musicians, and the like. Is there nothing that we can hold sacred any longer? Nothing that we can reserve for the true few who would lay down their lives so that others may live? Should not the highest honor 
our nation can bestow upon a civilian be reserved for true heroes rather than hand it out like trinkets to the connected and the wealthy. I didn't write this article to encourage political action. I know this practice will continue and there is nothing that can be done about it. I wrote this simply because I want people to know the real history of this honor and of one family sacrifice. Those in power may have cheapened the meaning of this honor, yet nothing can cheapen the honor of those who received it due to true service, sacrifice, and heroism. So I wanted to let you guys know something, and maybe some of you guys can help me um, with tracking something down. We have this one shadow box that my father-in-law had put together that hung on his wall that was mentioned in, in the reading of the article. And that is that picture uh, stapled to uh, a backboard. And we're going to very carefully remove those staples, take that picture, and have copies made of it. Because as far as we know, it's the only copy of that picture that exists. Uh, maybe, maybe other members of the family still in Europe have a copy, but we only know of one. So we want to make sure that there are copies of that photo. Um, and in that box, again, is a little ribbon. That ribbon is the Medal of Freedom. The, you, when you get a medal, they give you a medal that actually looks like a medal that hangs, and they give you a ribbon. And that ribbon is it represents that medal. Anybody in the military knows what I'm talking about. But civilians, uh, if you've ever seen a guy in military dress, he's got a bunch of ribbons on. Each one of those ribbons represents a medal. Because you don't want to just sit there. like Only in like certain dress situations do you wear the actual medals. And what happened to the original medal, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know if another family member has it, but what... My, 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 my father-in-law Fred had was the ribbon with the gold palm. Now the gold palm, that medal was, was issued and when it was created in 1945, they stated that there could never be a, a place where a person gets more than one. You don't get, you get one, you're done. But that they basically, in the military, let's say if you win a Army Achievement Medal and if you win another one, you don't put two on, on your dress uniform, There's an oak leaf cluster, and then there's different different metals have different identifiers for multiples. Um, so they, they they said you can't have more than one, but in certain circumstances they may be awarded additionally with a a bronze, a silver, or a gold palm, and the gold palm would then basically be the highest level of this incredibly high honor that a person could receive. That ribbon has the gold palm on it, and My hope is as we replicate the, the photos, I want to take and build shadow boxes for all of his children and grandchildren that have the photo uh, replicated, the photo of the rosary that, that was there, because you obviously can't have more than one of those, and the metal, so that even though they're recreations, they are the story. And so I, I, I tried to find, now the Medal of Freedom was discontinued in 1963 when it was replaced by the Presidential Medal of Freedom. So I um, went on eBay, and I was able to find a seller that had six uh, U.S. Medals of Freedom. They're very difficult to find. They probably don't make them anymore. Uh, they're probably just you know what's left in surplus, because most of the people that were awarded it are probably not here anymore. But what I have not been able to find, other than one, it was in pretty bad shape, is the ribbon. And certainly not the gold palm. I don't know if anybody out there knows where I could find something like that, but it would mean a lot to me because I'd like to get this put together for my family by Christmas time. Um, this, along with my article, uh, some other documentation we've been put together, and an article my son wrote when he was in grade school about this will all be given to each uh, descendant. 
each grandchild and each child of uh, of my father-in-law. So that was their great-grandfather and their great-great-grandfather. And I just think that's something really special that we can do this year. And if you guys can – it's not necessary. I'm going to do it with just the, the medals themselves uh, if I have to, but – It would be nice if I could find the ribbon so I could recreate as close to possible as the original. And uh, we've actually made a decision about the original uh, and where it will go. My my father-in-law had it. Of course, now he's in memory care. That That's too valuable to the family for it to be there. Uh, those people with Alzheimer's, like they call it shopping. They steal stuff. They don't think it's stealing. They think stuff's theirs. Um, so we have it now. But my sister-in-law, Grace, who's the oldest daughter, uh, will will take it and display it in her home and should she pass away then it will go to my wife and from there it will go to the youngest sister and when she's gone then it will go to the eldest grandchild and uh, we want to keep that in the family for a long time and uh, it does make me a little bit sick to see what's come of such a high honor because the people that receive that award At the you know the end of World War II is when that that medal was commissioned. It was for people who did what you expect from soldiers, but they did it as civilians, and they did it because it was the right thing to do. And it, it's it's one of the the few good stories out of such a horrific war. On that note, today's song, the song is by Carbon Leaf, and it's called "The War Was in Color," and I think it speaks for itself. So I'll let it do so. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I see you found a box of my things, infantry's tanks and smoldering airplane wings. These old pictures are cool, tell me some stories Was it like the old war movies? Sit down, son, let me fill you in Where to begin? Let's start with the end This black and white photo don't capture the skin From the flash of a gun To a soldier who's done Trust me, grandson The war was in color to see, from factory to sky, from rivet to rifle, from boot camp to battle cry. I wore the mask up high on a daylight run that held my face in its clammy hand. Crawled over coconut logs and corpses in the coral sand Where to begin? Let's start with the end 
This black and white photo Don't capture the skin From the shock of a shell Or the memory of smell If red is for hell The war was in color I held the canvas bag over the railing The dead released with the ship still sailing Out of our hands and into the swallowing sea I felt the crossfire stitching up soldiers Into a blanket of dead And as the night grows colder In a window back home A blue star is traded for gold Oh, where to begin? Let's start with the end This black and white photo Don't capture the skin when metal is churned and bodies are burned, victory earned, the war was in color. Before I bore a son What good did it do Well hopefully for you A world without war A life full of color Where to begin Start with the end This black and white photo Never captured my skin once it was torn from an enemy thorn Straight through the core, the war was in color Where to begin, let's start with the end This black and white photo never captured my skin From the flash of a gun, to a soldier who's done To rust me grandson was in color to rest me grandson the war was in color to rest me grandson the war was in color 